Welcome to the Why Your Bank Sucks podcast. My name is James Bach, and I'm here to tell you why your bank does, in fact, suck very much. Had a bit of a low-key weekend this weekend. I was doing a lot of reading. You know, what, what do I like to read about? I like to read about banks. I love to read about what I talk about because I find it so fascinating. I find everything about how big banks grew to be big banks so interesting. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean you don't want to know more about it. I want to know everything about big banks. So seeing, you know, the origins of Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Chase, it's it's very enlightening stuff. And, it, and it's something that I think the average person should find enlightening too. So I was doing all this reading and, you know, how did Bank of America get started? I already knew the story because I read it a billion times while working at Bank of America and, you know, acquisitions, because I remember Wells Fargo was called something different in my hometown before it was Wells Fargo. And it's interesting to get insight as to what the amount was that these mergers happened, you know, why did they happen, and what became as a result of those mergers. Really fascinating stuff, and I really think that if you're into, you know, finance or banking, you should really read about it. That way you could understand the companies that you deal with a lot more. You know, in the middle of doing all this reading, I was just kind of scrolling through Twitter the way that I normally do, searching for Bank of America, and I come upon this unique tweet that talks about Bank of America and the town of Fresno, California, and that's going to be the subject of today's podcast. It's going to be a very interesting one. Um, a lot of people don't realize how credit cards came to be. You know, I was born in 1983, so you know, credit cards were a thing for 30 years already, almost, and... As I grew up as a little kid, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I always, you know, kind of associated credit cards with being a bad thing. Uh, because mainly the only person that I knew that had a credit card was my grandmother. And I just remember she had it with Citibank. It was called Citibank and not just City at the time. And I just remember her. You know, taking her to Target and Walmart and Kmart. We didn't have these stores in my town, so we'd have to go to Albuquerque to, you know, use this the Citibank card that she had. And Christmases were great. I remember getting great gifts from my grandmother. This is someone who didn't work. You know, she was a stay-at-home mom and grandmother, and you know, my grandfather worked, so you know, money was very limited. Yet, she was swiping this card like she was Paris Hilton back in the late 80s, early 90s. It was. It was fascinating to me, and I remember thinking about that. But I also remember thinking about my grandma talking to my mom about, oh, wow, this credit card bill is really high, and the interest is killing me. And, I, you know, even as a young kid, they trusted me with such things, so I would look at at the bills, and I wouldn't understand what, you know, interest rate and all that stuff meant. But I just remember seeing a bill with a comma on it and just being really, really freaked out about how can someone owe that much money you know i couldn't really put money into perspective as a kid it's always associated with the stress and anxiety that my my grandma had and my mom had during that time so it, it, i came to it from a very negative spot and you know it was maybe a year or two after i first started to learn about it that i remember um a conversation that my mom had with me and i was about maybe 10 years old at the time where she said you know Grandma and Grandpa are fighting because Grandpa found out about this credit card that Grandma had and he's paying it off and he ordered her never to use the credit card again. And, you know, it's one of those humbling moments where you you see the beginning of money just equals anxiety and anger. 
And and I just remember just that feeling of like, wow, that stinks that this little piece of plastic can cause so much damage. So like I said, I always came to it from a negative spot. My first credit card came, you know, about eight years later in 2001. I was at a University of New Mexico football game and they were giving away free t-shirts if you apply for a Bank One credit card. Bank One eventually became Chase. So... I, I didn't really have any thoughts about getting the credit card. I just wanted the t-shirt. I'm a, I'm a free t-shirt kind of guy. I'm, if you have something to give to me for free, I'm going to get it. So I did my little application, you know, and it was like the dance team or cheerleaders giving these things away and, and having you fill out applications, which just seems horribly wrong. I don't know if they had any banking skills whatsoever, but they were just handing these t-shirts out as I filled out my application. I did it got the t-shirt. About eight weeks later, I get a credit card. I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, I didn't... Re- oh, yeah, I, I forgot. It was for the, the free t-shirt, right? $800 limit. And I I enjoyed it, you know? I was really proud. I was an adult, and I had adult responsibilities. I was still living at home, but I had a credit card, which told me, hey, you're important to this world. And I remember getting that and just feeling this this sense of power. And what was funny about it was... I was so afraid to use it, terrified to use it, and any time that I would use it, I would pay it off right away, because I would hear these horror stories about interest, and I remember my grandma's story and everything, and I just remember just going, well, I'd never want to get in trouble with those things, ever, 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 and a year or two went by, I got a second Bank One card, which became Chase, as I mentioned. And then things were starting to go good for me, so I applied for a city professional card. I wasn't a professional. I was barely a college student. I made no money, yet I saw that they were giving away like a $200 um, gift card or something if you spend $500. And I'm like, well, I need to buy a computer, so if I get this card and buy a computer, then I can qualify for the 200 so I considered it kind of like a gain. So I said, what the heck? I applied for it. I got it. Got the computer, got the bonus, and I have the city professional card still to this day, and we're talking 17 years later. So I paid it off, I was at zero, and then I realized um, my grandma had a credit card bill laying on her kitchen table. I, I used to get my mail in my grandma's house, I would go every day to go get my mail. And I asked her, I was like, hey, you got another credit card? And she's like, oh, you know, mijo, like... Yeah, it's it's bad. I I don't want to tell Grandpa because he's gonna get mad. I owe two thousand on it, and I was freaked out. You know, it's a lot of money for especially my grandparents who didn't make a lot of it. But I remember the same day that I saw that bill, I got a balance transfer offer at zero percent for my city card. And I told her I was like, hey, what if we use one of these checks to pay off your credit card bill? And you pay me back $50 a week or $50 every two weeks, whatever you know, Grandpa gets, until you pay it back. And I said, I promise you, you won't pay any more interest and you'll be done. And I, and I figured it out. It was a little less than a year. I said, in about one year, you're going to be totally paid off. And she's like, really? And she didn't believe it. She didn't understand how the balance transfer thing worked. And I barely understood it. But I figured, well, it's going to cost 3% of the total. And then $50 a week means this many weeks. So I broke it down for her. And she trusted me. So I went ahead and, you know, I went ahead and paid the tab. And then she would pay me any time that I would see her. And then literally, it was like maybe seven months later, we got it down to zero and I got rid of her credit card debt using my balance transfer checks and my credit card. And 
I just remember how grateful and thankful she was for that. And it was actually a really, really awesome moment in my life because I had solved a problem for my grandparents that, you know, was very serious for them and very serious for a lot of people. And at the same time, it improved my credit. <laughs> so I ended up getting another credit card and another one. And the, the, the moral of my story with my grandparents is I don't necessarily see credit cards as a bad thing. They're, they're absolutely not. They have helped me so much over the years. They have helped me so much get out of binds. You know, I I had used cars my whole life. My car would break down. Ah, oh, damn it, it's a $500 repair. I'm just going to throw it on the card. I'm just going to pay 100 a week until I get this sucker paid off. It helps you, you know, in basketball, they call it extending the game. You foul the person to stop the clock. Maybe they make their free throws. Maybe they miss their free throws. But it gives you a chance because the clock isn't moving and it allows you to get the ball back. You know, the credit card for me was, hey, it's giving me a chance to make an opportunity to make this right at that point in time. So I was I was always really excited about getting new credit because it always told me, hey, I'm doing good by me and I'm doing right by me. And, you know, there was a time where my car broke down. It was, you know, irreparably damaged and I just needed to buy another one. And anytime I would go to a car dealership, these these bloodsuckers would ask for, you know, 15% down and 10% interest rates. And I knew how much that would cost for a used car. I was, no thank you. I don't want to do that. So I remember going home just deflated. I was 23. And I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do for a vehicle. And finally, um, since I had my chase card for such a long time... It actually bumped the limit up from eight hundred dollars to sixty five hundred, but since I wasn't using it, and Chase was as predatory as they came back in you know the mid two thousands, they were looking for any way to kind of, kind of get you to kind of get you in that, hey, you're going to be locked with us forever type of thing. So I ended up getting a zero percent balance transfer offer for I believe it was thirty months, and. And they had no fee to transfer any balances over or to write this convenience check. There was no fee plus the 0% for that long. I remember telling my best friend at the time, I was like, I got to get a car with this. And it's like, you know, what idiot says to put a car on a credit card? Well, most idiots wouldn't. So I said, what the hell? I'm going to do it and I'm going to just trust in myself to pay it back. I was still living at home. I was still, you know, not really paying as many bills as I should, I guess, at that time. So I did it and I spent $6,100 on a Ford Explorer that I still have to this day, 11 years later. It, it, I don't use it as my primary car, but it, I got its full run out of it. I paid it off in two years, um, breaking it down to a couple hundred dollars a month at no interest, mind you. And. It was amazing, and I was impressed by how manageable that I had that. Now, around me, because I had moved and I had switched jobs and switched branches and everything, I got into some pretty good debt, and I, I lent cards to friends for food and stupid things like that, bought concert tickets, went out on a bunch of dates with girls that I never um, intended on seeing more than once, and I just racked up this credit card debt that was just too much. But I'll never say that it's a bad thing because of my mistakes. My mistakes are my mistakes. And one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is I want to make sure that people don't, you know, follow the same mistakes that I have as well. But 
it helped me finance a car. So credit cards, when used responsibly, are amazingly good. And I was really glad for it because I don't know what type of car I would have drove the last 10 years had it not been for a 0% offer from, from Chase. You know, and that leads me to today's topic. You know, we learn to live without credit cards when we don't have them when we're kids or whenever you have bad credit, you just have to learn how to adjust without having credit. But what if I told you that the credit card industry was kind of started in a controlled experiment by Bank of America? That Bank of America was literally the mad scientist and they preyed upon a very small town with these pieces of plastic that no one knew what they were, no one knew what they did, yet they took the bait because it was like mother's milk. It was so soothing to them that, hey, a bank is loaning me money. What the hell? I'm going to use this. And it led to what is essentially probably one of the worst problems we have in the nation. As of a few years ago, we were $900 billion in credit card debt. $900 billion. Okay, so Bank of America made $26 billion last quarter. That's literally 40 times the amount of money um, is what we're in debt to. Not just Bank of America, but all the other companies. At 10 to 15% interest or higher, it's going to just go up and up because all people do are make minimum payments. And it's very frustrating. So after a 13-minute intro here, but it was a story. It was a story I wanted to tell you about credit cards and how I wanted to preface it by saying... Credit cards are not bad. The banks are bad in the situations that they put you in. But today's story is really interesting because I stumbled upon a tweet about Bank of America and Fresno, California and the year 1958. And I find it really, really fascinating. So I really think you would too. So um, after this brief promotional consideration, I am going to tell you the story of what's called the Fresno Drop. So I'll be right back in just a second. The Wire Bank Sucks podcast is brought to you by our friends at Kasasa. So if you go to kasasa.com, that's K-A-S-A-S-A.com, you can learn more about Kasasa checking, which is free checking with awesome rewards. You can ask for Kasasa at more than 2,939 local bank and credit union branches nationwide. Earning cash rewards and ATM withdrawal fee refunds is super simple with them. If you're using your debit card, logging into online banking, using direct deposit, and signing up for e-statements, things you already do at your bank, you can actually earn rewards with Kasasa. You get truly personal service from people who care right down the street, free checking, no exceptions, no monthly maintenance fees, ever, ever, ever. Cash rewards every month, you can earn up to 34 times more than the average account with a bank. And an ATM on every corner, refunds on ATM withdrawal fees nationwide, that sounds like Kasasa checking to me and that sounds like a great deal. So go to Kasasa.com, that's K-A-S-A-S-A.com to discover a Kasasa account near you. I got to tell you, they're changing the way that you're doing banking, my friends, and I'm a believer now. So go to Kasasa today. All right, and we are back. So Fresno, California, home of California State University at Fresno, better known as Fresno State University, the Bulldogs. They played in the same conference as the University of New Mexico in football and basketball uh, for years. So I'm quite familiar with the college. But I never really knew about Fresno as a whole until my 20s. So, you know, Fresno is one of those places where a lot of people after World War II kind of migrated towards as a farming community. You know, they had row crops. They had a lot of orchards over there. So any type of citrus that you get from California is likely going to be from Fresno. And, you know, row crops such as, you know, potatoes and beets and all that, all those things 
were grown in Fresno. And that's how I always knew of it. I've, of course, I'm sure you've heard of the Fresno chili. You know, it's something that rivals the hatch green chili of my home state. There's a lot of these things going on in Fresno. So it's mainly a farming community. I grew up in an area which is kind of a farming community. And the one thing that I can tell you is for the most part, a lot of people in farming communities are not as well educated as, you know, people from a huge city where there's a lot more income. That's just simple facts, okay? So, you know, I, I grew up in a town where only 68% of the population graduated high school. So there's several thousand people in a town of 8,000 that didn't even pass the 12th grade. So I think of Fresno, I think of that, just the farming community and everything that goes along with it. And I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of other demographical things is the fact that, you know, a lot of minorities, especially Latinos back in the day, were there to essentially pick those crops, to help cultivate those farms and those orchards. And that's not a bad thing. It's hard labor, but it's labor that a lot of people in that community like to do and they wanted to do because they felt that they could make an honest day's living out of it. So I knew all these things about Fresno aside from it being a great boxing town and there's a lot of boxers that kind of train in that general area. So I knew a lot about kind of the ideas of Fresno. But when I saw this tweet a couple of days ago about how Bank of America kind of launched their credit card program in Fresno, California, I just found it to be such a weird just trivia question. And I love trivia. My goal is to be on Jeopardy and I still want to do that. I would have got this question wrong because I would have never thought in a million years that Bank of America, which originated in San Francisco and is now headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina, would pick a, a smaller town in the middle of nowhere. It's in California, I know, but a small, you know, non-plus town here called Fresno, California to be the birthplace of the credit card. So 1958, Fresno Bank of America, that started off um, a pretty intense Google search, which led to a few different articles. And I'm going to quote, and I'm going to cite um, all of them on the show notes as well, because I would like you to read these as well. Uh, there was an interesting article by Joseph Nocera in 1994, 25 years ago. And he talks about the day the credit card was born. And I just want to read the first paragraph. Because it's really interesting how it starts because it kind of tells you the whole story right there. So it says, America began to change on a mid-September day in 1958 when Bank of America dropped its first 60,000 credit cards on the unassuming city of Fresno, California. That's a word they like to use in the credit card business to characterize a mass mailing of cards, a drop, quote-unquote. And it is an unwittingly apt description. There had been no outward yearning among the residents for such a device, nor even the dimmest awareness that such a thing was in the works. It simply arrived one day with no advance warning, as if dropped from the sky. Over the course of the next 12 years, before the practice of mass card mailings was outlawed, banks would blanket the country with 100 million credit cards of one sort of another, and it would always have that same feeling. It would always seem as though those first 100 million credit cards had simply fallen from the sky. It's so fascinating to me that Bank of America chose Fresno, California, you know, a, a small town at the time, to literally just send out 60,000 credit cards to people. Now, the first thing I thought about was, since Fresno is a college town, I mean, surely it couldn't be a humongous city, kind of like my hometown of Las Cruces, New Mexico is, and I was exactly right. So I went to look at the population demographics of Fresno 
and since it was 1958, I just rounded up to 1960, there was 133,000 people that were in the census um, as of 1960, two years after the cards were dropped in Fresno, California. So you figure 60,000, and you just figure a normal rate of growth. Half the town got sent a piece of plastic and said, hey, here's your credit card. And that's just amazing to me. I can't believe that half the town literally just got approved, pre-approved for a credit card, and they just got something in the mail and it's like, hey, here you go, you can use it. How how insane is that? That that literally happened in our in our existence. I just I just can't believe it. It's just something that's it's stunning to me. You know, working in a bank for as long as I did that this happened. So there's another article from the San Jose Mercury News, and they talk about it. They say they call it the Fresno drop. 50 years ago, Bank of America mass-mailed to every home in Fresno a small piece of plastic called the Bank AmeriCard. The credit card had arrived, a shiny corkscrew for each recipient to unbottle thousands of dollars in spending money that hadn't existed before they ripped open those envelopes. The first taste went right to Fresno's head. By the second year, cardholders had racked up $60 million in purchases, and Bank of America, Bank AmeriCard morphed into the Visa powerhouse. And a half century later, as America embraced and then exported the concept of buying things with money that folks didn't have, the whole world has gotten tipsy. $60 million in purchases in literally two years of this experiment that Bank of America did. So what Bank of America did is when they sent this piece of plastic out to people in Fresno... It's saying, here's a card. You're already approved for a loan with Bank of America. The Bank of America card allows you a $500 line of credit. You can use it to buy the groceries and pay the bills. And then you just pay us back. Yes, there's a slight interest rate that's associated with it. But it allows you to basically pay the bills that you need to pay immediately. People jumped on that. I can't believe that they jumped on it. It's it's very Back to the Future-esque. If you just went into some random town, and ironically Hill Valley's in California, much like Fresno is, and you tell them, hey, I'm going to send you this piece of plastic, and it's really, it's technically money. So anytime you show this piece of plastic at a store, they're going to they're gonna say that you're good for whatever that you're going to purchase, and they'll write it down, and then we'll send you a bill at the end of the month. And you could pay it as you go. You could pay monthly, you can pay it, pay it in full if you'd like. So 60,000 households got $500 in credit. And one of the things that I immediately, you know, asked myself was, well, how much is $500 in 1958? So, of course, I Google that as well. What the hell would we do without Google, guys? $500 in 1958 is about $3,900 in today's money. So it's about eight times its value. So basically, Bank of America just gave out $4,000 credit cards to the whole town of Fresno. And they wanted to see it as a, you know, kind of a test market and as, a, as an experiment to see if they can go bigger with this. Now, I want to get to that part next. So the fact that they did this as kind of like a test marketing run is, is really gross to me. Um, just because they just randomly picked a town that they, they were in business with, but that wasn't their headquarters. Or that wasn't a town that would get a lot of notice and that's kind of why they did it but i'm all for test marketing products i'm all for test runs of products in in towns as as nerdy as it sounds and i can't believe i'm sharing this but one of the things i love to do when i go to a town that i've never been to 
Um, I went. I went to was it Lenexa, Kansas? I remember I had to stop in Lenexa, Kansas, um, a few years back just to put gas. And I put gas at this Walmart gas station thing. And I said, hey, I'm just gonna go into Walmart and walk around. I'd been driving a while, so I just wanted to walk around. And you know, when I went in there, there was all these products that I had never seen before, and they weren't local to Lenexa. They were they were products from big companies. I remember seeing, you know, Lay's Lay's salt and vinegar chips. I had never seen those before in New Mexico. So I was like, wow, they're these must be specific to Kansas, I guess. My aunt went to Detroit a long time ago and then I remember she told me stories of seeing ketchup flavored potato chips which apparently are very popular in Canada so Detroit's kind of right there and I just remember going wow ketchup flavored potato chips what's the you know how do you get those how how weird is that now they have freaking ketchup flavored potato chips in every dollar store in my hometown over here and I've tried them once and I'll never try them again but I remember how weird it was to me to hear about those things Companies do that all the time. They test market products in a small sample size to see if they work. And they say, hey, you want to try this this new type of burger over here? Well, give it a try. It's only local to this town. But if you can leave a survey and let us know what you think about it, if there's anything we can improve, we'd love that. They take all this all this data back to headquarters, whatever headquarters is, and says, hey, you know, people like the taste of the burger, although they thought that there was too much cheese on it, maybe a little bit less cheese. And also they wanted a bigger bun because the meat was hanging over the bun and it just was not proportioned right. They go back to the lab a few months later. They come out with a burger that's kind of tailored to the needs of all those people who took the surveys. So test markets are important. And I like the idea of being able to try something and tell people what my thoughts are about it before it goes mainstream. I think it's really cool and I think it's a really interesting part of American culture that we're all about test marketing and sample subjects and sample sizes and just seeing, hey, will this work? No, it won't work. Well, all of a sudden, San Antonio, Texas says that it wasn't really a good product, so I guess the rest of the nation won't like it either, so we're not going to mass produce it. Well, Bank of America basically sent the whole town of Fresno a piece of plastic and said, hey, here's some free money. Do you want to use it? And so many people bit on it, which is just amazing to me. It's it's simply stunning how without any knowledge whatsoever, people jumped at it. And you know, credit wasn't a, a foreign thing to people. Back in the olden times they had store tabs and bar tabs, and you know, you would put it on your grocery store account and then you would pay them whenever you got paid. You know, gentlemen's agreements were that. It was people who knew each other and trusted each other. And they said, you know, at the end of the week, um, you got to pay up your tab at the meat market. Otherwise, you can't get any more meat. And people were honest about it. So the idea of credit was not something that was just so weird that no one had ever thought about it. It's just that Bank of America just said, here's a card. You're already approved with us. And it's just kind of basically saying, you know, we want your business. and We're going to give you this. Here you go. And I think people were just so stunned by the offer that so many people bit into it. You know what I mean? So many people all of a sudden decided to say, hey, I'm going to give this a try. And so many people got into debt. So within 10 years of that Fresno drop, the United States had $1.5 billion in credit card debt. And I think Bank of America saw an idea there saying, hey, you know, 
we're going to drop this car in Fresno and we're going to see if it works. And if they like it, then they're going to use it more. And then, of course, we can kind of charge the storefronts from, for accepting our card and then we could charge the customers for using our card. It, it, it just seemed like a foolproof plan for them and it worked out well. As I mentioned, $900 billion in credit card debt the United States, United States has. It, it's, it's, it's totally stunning to me and... and I always said, well, why Fresno? You know, that that was my biggest thing about it was, well, Fresno, as I mentioned, is a town of 133,000 people at the time. My town of Las Cruces, New Mexico, has just over 100,000. It's a big enough town to where you could avoid people you don't want to see. I do that every single day. Um, but it's small enough to kind of run into someone who knows those people you don't want to see. So Fresno was no different than, than Las Cruces back in the 1960s. But you you got to understand, while Bank of America's headquarters at the time was in San Francisco, a huge town with business people and, you know, well-educated people, where I think that this project would not have flown as well in a town where people who went to college, and, and part of going to college is to learn how to kind of, you know, hypothesize and break down things and be skeptical of certain things. I think, you know, learning skepticism is a really important part of life and going to college allows you to kind of debate and in hear lectures as to why something isn't what it should be and so forth. So, you know, like I said, I'm not anti-credit card, but I'm anti how Bank of America thought of it in 1958. And yeah, the way we thought about things in 1958 is totally different than the way we think about things now. But you got to think about it, okay? So Fresno, California, an unassuming town, small town in California. It's not L.A., it's not San Francisco or San Diego. You have a, a farming community, you know, a community with people who farm potatoes and beets, and they have orchards over there. Uneducated people, people who work for their, their mom and dad, while they're still young and they maybe they drop out of school so they can work on the farm or work on the ranch or whatever. So we're talking uneducated people and I, and Fresno is a college town and Fresno had Fresno State back then. But the majority of people weren't going to school. So majority of people don't really know the first thing about finance and managing money just because they don't get that education in that. See, they're sending these cards to a very uneducated town or population, if you will, at that time. And you're sending it to a place that has a burgeoning, you know, minority population, mostly Latinos, back in the late 50s, early 60s. And you kind of start to feel gross and grimy about the Fresno drop because I think kind of the reason why it was done in Fresno and not San Francisco, aside from the fact that people were much more educated and savvy in San Francisco in a big city than Fresno, I really think it was about a well. If this thing failed miserably, and all sixty thousand households maxed out their five hundred dollar line of credit, and they didn't pay, and they took losses, the bank did, and all of a sudden there was all these lawsuits and small claims in court and whatnot that were that were being done in Fresno. I think Bank of America, and it says so in some of these articles, just essentially says, well. It wouldn't get the media attention that L.A. and New York and Chicago and San Francisco would. People say, Fresno, California, oh, it's in the sticks. It's just probably a couple of yokels who just decided to get some get into something that they shouldn't have. And then also with the Latino element on there, just, oh, well, irresponsible, you know, uneducated people that work in farms who are, you know, picking crops for a living, they don't know the first thing about managing money. So, of course, our experiment would fail because, 
well, it doesn't seem like the population was really savvy in how to use these things. I really think that Bank of America kind of built in a lot of excuses in case it did fill. With the small town, uneducated population, uh, burgeoning minority community. In order to say, hey, this is why it failed as opposed to, we're going to give it to these people because we know that they're going to use it. And I got to tell you, you know, we'll fast forward 60 years later working in a in a border town of Mexico, you know, 40 miles away from Mexico is where I'm at. When you help someone who's a permanent resident who's trying to become a U.S. citizen, and I don't want to get into the debate of all that. Someone who's, you know, legitimately here for school purposes or work purposes, and they're trying to be part of the system and Bank of America you know, wants their business, so they get an account. So you open an account, and about maybe a year or two later, they see how they use their debit card and how they're managing their account. So the bank will offer them a credit card. I remember as a salesperson, I would say, hey, you know, Mr. Gonzalez, I'm just picking a random Hispanic name here. I mean, my last name is Baca, so I'll just say Mr. Baca. Mr. Baca, you were actually approved for a $500 Bank of America credit card. Um, what the bank sees is they're seeing how well you're taking care of your account. They show that you're putting money in it and you're using your account. So what Bank of America does is they're saying, hey, we, we trust this person in order to take the next step. And um, since you're becoming a United States citizen, we would love for you to establish your credit with us. Um, there's no annual fee. There's no interest for the first 18 months. Um, all i got to do is ask you a few simple questions, and we'll get that card out to you. Do you, do you, um, is that something you might be interested in, Mr. Baca? And i got to tell you, people who aren't from this country, whenever they have a bank account, they feel established and they feel excited about banking in general, and then when the bank tells them that they can get credit and are alone, you don't, you can't believe how big their eyes light up. It's, it's astounding to me. As a Hispanic American, um, I never really saw those type of things until I started working at the bank, and I see how how people um, from my ethnic background kind of see banks in this whole other light of wow, these these are important people. Like I felt so important to a lot of people, and I was just a sales manager. And they would go, oh, wow, the bank wants to give me a credit card? Oh, my goodness, wow, yes, yes, I'll take it. And you would see their eyes light up because it's like they arrived. You know, I <laughs> I remember this episode of The Simpsons where Apu, um, and what's funny is Apu's not on The Simpsons anymore because of kind of the way we think about stereotypes and whatnot. Um, Apu was trying to become an American citizen, and he becomes an American citizen passing the citizenship test. And then he looks at his mail and he's like, I am truly an American now. I got my first jury duty notice. And then he balls it up and he throws it away. I mean, that that's that's how that's how silly it is whenever people say they finally arrived, okay? So as a Hispanic American, seeing my customers go, wow, I'm going to get a credit card, I totally relate to that. How I knew I was important at Bank of America was they were able to uh, refund me my gas mileage to go to a sales meeting. They're saying, oh, yeah, you need to drive to El Paso. Just put it on the expense account and we'll refund you your mileage. I, I didn't know that that was a thing until I became a manager. That's how much I knew. So there's moments where we know that we arrived and credit cards were that for <clears throat> the Hispanic population. Now, in 1958 America, of course, truth and lending laws and all that were passed and I think banks were able to get away with a lot more back in the day and kind of have plausible deniability and say, well, we're just trying something out. We're not going to do it again. But it worked. 
And that's the, that's the insane thing about it was they picked a town that they knew that whether it was good or bad, they were going to be able to get away with a significant amount of money and a significant amount of data that's going to allow them to grow over the next several decades. And they did it. You know, I really think that so many people became kind of beholden to all these cards that they were issued over the years that they discovered something kind of by accident. They said, yes, of course, people are going to use these cards because everyone has a need for them at some point in time. And it's funny how you can live your whole life without needing something, but then whenever someone shows it to you, now you can't live without it. I can't live without my smartphone now. If I went back to a flip phone, I would just I would die because it's 90% of my day for the most part. Credit cards are an important part of my day. I, I used a credit card to buy coffee today. Not because I was broke. It was just because it was something that was easily more easily accessible than going to the ATM and getting cash out. So, you know, in 1958, whenever someone tells you, hey, you're approved for a loan, 20 or 30 years after people lost trust in banks because of the Great Depression and everything, people are going, yeah, of course, why not? You know, I, I like they, it almost made them feel like they were important, but what they didn't know was their neighbor got the same card and everyone in their freaking town got the same card. And, you know, the interesting thing about the Fresno drop was, and I'm getting this from mentalfloss.com, was basically that the, the results were disastrous for Fresno. So I'm going to read this couple of paragraphs here. It says, unfortunately for B of A project manager Joe Williams, he was a little ahead of his time. The bank didn't have a method of figuring out which customers are credit worthy. And then when the company tried to wing it, the results were disastrous. At one point, the bank's Los Angeles branch made a list of customers who definitely should receive cards. Those lists still exist to this day, by the way. They, met, they bungled the paperwork and issued cards to all of the would-be deadbeats who were quite happy to fulfill their end of the prophecy. And it says, worse still, Bank of America naively assumed that the cardholders would pay their bills. That's what decent folks do when they owe some money, right? Not so much. 22% of the payments were delinquent in the, in the program's early days, and the whole project was beset by fraud. Yes, fraud existed in 1958, guys. Phantom charges started racking up from stolen cards and unscrupulous merchants. So people would steal cards and use them, and of course everyone was so gentlemanly back in the day, no one asked for ID. Unscrupulous merchants, people were overcharging on these cards because everything was paper. You can obviously fudge paper at that point in time. So they were losing lots of money. And and this story here is kind of it's kind of weird how they talk about it because it says the Bank of Maricard lost $20 million in the first year on the market, which is $150 million in today's cash. So they lost $150 million equivalent today in money in the first year of this experiment that they had. But here's here's the interesting thing about it. I go to Vegas, I'm a gambler. I, I love to gamble. And any any gambler will tell you, especially someone who plays blackjack or poker, that sometimes you need to lose in order to win. So I think Bank of America was kind of thinking about it, kind of like a, you know, a blackjack player or a poker player, and saying, well... You know, the cards are going to shuffle right for me now, especially if you're a card counter in blackjack and you're like, I'm counting that there should be X amount of face cards still left in the deck. And they know they know this because they're just using their brain to say, hey, I'm going to ride out the bad. I'm going to keep my bets low. That way I can save the most amount of money. And then once I know that the tide's going to start to turn, I'm going to start to bet more on this and I'm going to win. So Bank of America did. So this mental floss article 
um, and I will link to it in the show notes as well, is kind of looking at this incorrectly. They lost $20 million in 1958 money in the first year, but once again, we're $900 billion in credit card debt today, and they have, you know, 5 to 29% interest on these cards. That's basically just making that number grow instead of going down. So they invested and lost, but guess what? The 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, now going into the 2020s, those decades are filled with a lot of freaking face cards, guys. Jacks, queens, and kings, they're, they're making their money now. Being a, being a smart gambler is knowing when times are bad that you got to ride it out. I, I I do this all the time whenever I'm in Vegas with um, my wife, and she plays slot machines differently than I do. I play them through, and if I lose, I lose. But if she goes on a losing streak, she'll want to cash out right away. Like she puts a twenty dollar bill in, and she's lost ten dollars in a row. She's like, I can't take this last one. And she wants to cash out. I'm like, you well, if you always cash out at the halfway point, and then you're moving to different machines at different casinos. It's not tracking your progress. It's tracking the progress of the machine. So you're going to catch this one on the losing streak. Then you're going to use that 10 and you're going to put it in another slot machine that's going to be on a losing streak. And and you'll never win and you'll never get right. So sometimes you just got to take those losses like an adult. And Bank of America did. And they were pretty smart about it if you're looking at the greedy bank perspective of it. Because they lost $20 million in the first year, $900 billion in debt. Yeah, there was a little bit of fraud here or there or whatever. But guess what? There's a little bit of fraud here and there with banks now. And they're still making money. If they're so hell-bent on preventing fraud and they're making $26 billion um, a year, $28 billion a year, excuse me, then of course they're going to say, well, we lost $100 million on fraud. So what? We made $28 billion. So all these projects that happened in the 50s were kind of... It was an educated guess. I don't think it was just flying by the seat of the pants. And I and I find it interesting that it was in September of 1958 because we're talking the last month of quarter three. They're trying to find ways to kind of boost their numbers to boost their share of the banking pie, if you will. So getting all these people hooked on these cards and start having them charge on these cards is good for business because it shows, hey, we have loans in excess of X amount of dollars now. And to your stockholders and to the people who pay attention to those things, even back then, that was big stuff. It's like, wow, you guys are really doing a great job at trying to acquire more loans and more debt. Good for you. High fives. So, of course, it was an educated guess. Of course, it was something that was with the data that they had and the assumption that the project would work, that it would all be fine in the, in the long run. You know, companies don't really become successful unless they, they risk a little bit, unless they try something new, unless they... They try something different to make them different than their competitors. And Bank of America, Bank of America with the Bank of America did that in 1958. But I really think that inadvertently they created this monster that they're not worried about, but I'm worried about. And I think you should be worried about too, where there's so much credit card debt now. And it's it's I'm in credit card debt and I'm trying really hard with this podcast in order to be successful so I can get out of it. And it, it's all because they they decided to pick on this poor little town, Fresno, California, in 1958, sending them pieces of plastic and saying, "Hey, if if we think, if what we're thinking is correct, and these people are going to use it, and we're going to make X amount of dollars, and if we can go kind of statewide, and then maybe go national with this thing in a few years, we can make millions, if not billions, of dollars." Well, guys, two years after the credit card drop of Fresno, Bank of America 
um, was the preferred bank and the main bank for two-thirds of California. California wasn't as big then as it is now, but it's, that's tens of millions of people that were banking with Bank of America. And then, of course, through the interstate banking stuff of the 80s and 90s, Bank of America and Nations Bank came together and became the mega power that it is today with, you know, a trillion dollars in, in assets, billions of dollars of revenue every single quarter, thousands of branches, millions of customers, millions of customers in credit card debt, and a big chunk of that $900 billion credit card debt. And it all started with, hey... This bunch of farming yokels in Fresno, California. Let's send them a piece of plastic. Let's see if we can make some money. It's a very, very seedy way that the credit card was born. Like I said, I really, really needed credit cards at a time in my life where I didn't have a lot of money. And I was able to use them responsibly. But to think that this monstrosity was born out of a... Let's let's experiment on a little town and let's see if we can we can make some money out of this. My friends, that is why your bank has sucked since 1958. <laughs> I, I I I gotta laugh. It's it's an interesting story and there's so much more to tell and maybe we could talk some more about it um, down the road. I I've actually met someone who's had a credit card with Bank of America since 1958. If you can believe that. Um, Funny enough, he had his card closed by Bank of America because he had been a customer so long, no one had bothered to update his um, ID information on the system. And he came to my office and Bank of America closed his card because we couldn't identify him because he didn't have his ID on file. Well, this this man had outlived many mergers and many computer changes and many records keeping changes. And 2018 Bank of America said, oh, we don't know who this you know 80-something man is. And I had to tell this man that his credit card that he had in his wallet, which said customer since 1958, would not exist anymore. And I can send him another card, which says customer since 2018. I mean, the bank literally just crapped on 60 years of um, a loyal customer with that. And that's another reason why your bank sucks, my friends. So I'm quite familiar with this. It's a very fascinating topic. I, I You know what? I will talk more about this. I would love to talk to some old-timer from Fresno. If we ever get successful, I'm going to find some 80-something person from Fresno and ask him about whenever he got his first credit card. I think that would be cool. Uh, my name is James Baca, and I'll be right back after this brief promotional consideration with what's going on in the following podcast. So stick around. All right, thanks again to listening, and thanks so much to our sponsor, Kasasa, for sponsoring this podcast. I really am thankful for them. Go to kasasa.com, that's K-A-S-A-S-A.com, for more information about getting a free checking account in your area that has great rewards and has ATM fee refunds and, and the whole nine yards. It's a really great account, and these are really, really great people that you want to do business with. So go to kasasa.com today. They are our sponsor, and we love them to death. Um, once again, we talked about, of course, the Fresno drop of Bank of America and the history of the credit card and the history of me with credit cards. And I thank you so much for listening to that. Um, follow our Twitter page at Bank Screwed Us. That's our running commentary, vigilante customer service, and so much more. Uh, we celebrated 600 followers this morning. And at the time of recording this podcast, we're at 613. I don't know what the hell is going on, but I've literally jumped 20 followers overnight. And I'm really happy and thankful for that. That means that the word is getting out and people are seeing the good work that we're doing and the great stories that we're telling. And I, and I, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate that. 
Of course, the cynic in me says, well, we could have had so much more. And that's true. I think a lot of people, whenever they have their problems solved, they don't want to think about the negativity with Bank of America and other banks anymore. So they unfollow, which is totally fine. I'm all about that. Um, but I really think that we've probably touched maybe closer to eight to 900 lives instead of 613. And I'm still really thankful for those people too. But if you want to show your support for this, um, and you want to, and you want to just keep the number high, cause I intend this number to grow, literally mute me, <laughs> follow me. And then if you're done with your problems saying, Hey, I'm going to show strength and solidarity in numbers. And I don't want to hear about everyone else's bank problems and these bank issues over and over again. Put me on mute on Twitter. I'm fine with that. I would I would love to have your support without necessarily having you bombarded by all these bank complaints because it's it's hard for me as well. I, I gotta admit. So you know, follow us at Bank Screwed Us. Bank Sucks Pod is our um, official Twitter page. Although that's where I just post the links to the podcast. There's nothing of note on that page. My personal account, not much of note on there either. But if you want to see me in the flesh, that's a revolting thought, right? Is that James B is right? It's mostly gym pictures and Vegas stories and retweets of amazing sports highlights. But I mean, that's who I am. My name is James Baca, and I'm a real person. And I want you to basically see the man behind the madness of why your bank sucks. A uh, couple of books coming out. Bank of America nearly made me homeless, and I work there. And beer money. Both of those are coming out on Amazon very soon. I'm actually going to take the photos for Beer Money finally. I've been wanting to take those pictures for five months. Um, that's going to be soon. The books are done. They've been done for a while. I just want to put them out there. And I hope and I hope that you buy them because that's going to help me pay the bills, quite frankly. And I will donate a portion of the proceeds to charity as well. And, um, of course, we're going to have The Bank Screwed Us, which is going to be 100 stories from 100 customers of Bank of America bad experiences and that'll be coming out the second that I get that hundred story my friends. I am going to officially announce my Patreon, patreon.com slash sucks on the next podcast. I want to let you know what's available and how you can help. Guys, if you really believe in the cause, if you really want someone to fight for what's right in banking, I'm your guy for that. I worked there 13 years, I know all the good things, I know all the horrible things about that place. So with a donation of as little as $1 a month, you can help me keep up the website, pay for the bandwidth, pay for all that good stuff. Allow me to pay the bills that I need as well, you know, the internet bill and everything to allow me to do this podcast. And in order to fight, I can't fight if I'm working a 9 to 5 at Burger King, guys. There's nothing wrong with Burger King. My family's in the restaurant industry. But I want to be able to give you all of my time and effort to fight and to help you against big banks. And I'm here for that. So if you if you want me to help other people with as little as $1 a month, you can make that happen. And I promise you, I will give my all. And I do. I give 80 hours a week to this already um, because I really believe that much in it. So guys, that's it for now. I'm going to have one podcast before the Memorial Day weekend that should drop either on Thursday or Friday. And then we'll be back the following Tuesday for that. And I will give away another Google Home Mini as well in that, round, in that amount of time as well. So stick around listen to that. Guys, share this podcast with your friends. Just tell them to type in why your bank sucks on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're on Breaker. We're on Stitcher. We're on all these places where you get podcasts. Just let them know. Share it with a friend. Let them know to click because we donate one cent to charity for any time that Anchor, the host of this podcast, records our plays. So please, please, please share the podcast, share the love, and I promise you I will give back to you tenfold in terms of effort and desire to make sure that we understand why banks do these things and how we can stop them. 
So again, thank you so much for that. And once again, my name is James Bach, and I just told you why your bank sucks. You have a great day. We'll talk to you soon.